Welcome to the Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, and I'm your host, Eugene Borohovich. In the last episode, we virtually traveled to Germany to have a deep dive into the Digital Healthcare Act with none other than Christian Dirks. Christian is the managing partner at Dirksen Company and was absolutely instrumental in getting the DVG off the ground. In this episode, I'm super excited to speak with Jonas Duss, co-founder and US CEO of Kaya Health, a Munich-based company that have expanded to United States. Kaya, in their own words, is a proven MSK solution that combines human care with superior technology to achieve better outcomes. Since we recorded the episode in January, Kaya unveiled their complete MSK care solution with Kaya Gateway and Premium Partners. But before we dive in, I met Jonas years ago in Berlin as Kaya was exploring pharmaceutical partnerships. I absolutely loved what the team was doing in COPD, but unfortunately could not convince internal stakeholders to move forward at that time. My first impression of Jonas as a kind, caring human being, but also as a methodical and highly driven entrepreneur, only strengthened as I got to know him over the years. And now we jump to my conversation with Jonas. I am here with Jonas Das, co-founder of Kaya, as well as CEO of their US business. Welcome to this podcast, Jonas, and would love to have the audience get to know you a little bit. What's your background and how you came to digital therapeutics and even more specifically Kaya? Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me, Eugene. It's a pleasure. Yeah, my name is Jonas Das. I was born and grew up in Switzerland, which is probably why I love the outdoors and adventure sports. I'm, I'm an avid skier and mountain biker. At the same time, I feel a little bit Spanish at heart. I lived there for a while and I really fell in love with the people and the culture there where you lucky man are living right now. That's, that's right. I'm enjoying it. Congratulations. You did something, right? <laughs> <laughs> so my educational background is originally mechanical and chemical engineer by training. And um, I've always felt the, the urge to want to build something that would have a sustainable impact. So I first focused on research around renewable energies, material science around solar thermal reactors for solar fuels, drilling technologies for geothermal power plants, um, uh, big quantitative imaging for things like drug discovery. So the recurring theme really was having an impact via technology that pushes our boundaries in a sustainable way. And the chemical engineering and imaging research sparked my interest in the pharmaceutical industry and healthcare in general. There was kind of a medical imaging uh, challenge part in it as well. And circumstance and curiosity wanted it that I, in the end, landed in the digital therapeutic space. Amazing. And obviously leveraging technology, I guess almost, uh, I didn't know that you're almost a rocket scientist. I'm kidding. But um What was the impetus to, I know you sort of joined Constantine pretty early on. So I think applying technology to a better good, that's fantastic. Now, how did you actually end up at Kaya with Constantine? Yeah, so it's an interesting story because I originally joined Kaya via our digital therapeutic for COPD. So our second product, David Boutelier, my so-called COPD co-founder, so to say, Myself, we came up with an idea to build an exercise device that would help COPD patients exercise more regularly, but feel safe while doing so. Uh, because one of the main problems around COPD is that it is a, a condition that can be managed by exercising more, 
the exercising means pushing oneself to a state of, of breathlessness, which can cause anxiety in these individuals, which in turn can lead to resisting to do more exercise, which in turn again increases the, the probability of, of suffering breathlessness at even lower physical exertion. So we wanted to break that cycle by building an exercise device originally that would, you know, take that breathlessness state into account and support the individual more or less, for example, like an electrical bike with a feedback loop and adjusted support. So we started talking to pulmonologists about that idea, realized there was an existing therapy, pulmonary rehabilitation with a broad body of evidence, but a low accessibility, saw that there was a big unmet need and realized, you know, maybe the device is not the right way to go, but maybe we should actually digitize the treatment, deliver it through the smartphone. And that's the stage we were at when we kind of had a concept and first clinical partnerships where we met Constantine at a conference doing something very similar in the, in the pain space. And um, Kai had progressed already a little further uh, than, than we were. And so we we decided to sit with the folks of very early Kaya back then in the office for a few weeks, figured pretty quickly that the chemistry was right. And then um, we made a deal, brought our COPD concept to Kaya and brought it to life with the existing team there, with the existing infrastructure, which was uh, an amazing time. Within two months of officially joining, we had the COPD digital therapeutic available as a regulated device and um, eventually took on roles, um, both David and myself, that went across the two conditions, more general roles, uh, David leading the product organization and myself leading the commercial organization. Awesome. And obviously, as these deals happen, you guys are sitting in the room, and I'm sure you were talking about what's that business hypothesis, right? How does Kaya solve the you know, yes, the patient challenges and problems, but also from a market entry perspective. And given the fact that, you know, Swiss and German in the Dach region, I think this is where your core and where you guys started as Kaya. So maybe you can talk a little bit about the business hypothesis as you guys were sitting there making that deal between the two and the go-to-market. Yeah, a lot of chronic pain sufferers, really originally the reason why Kaya was founded was because Constantine himself was suffering from chronic pain and uh, actually studying in New York at Columbia, realizing that it's, it's not easy to get the right treatment. A lot of chronic pain sufferers don't get a sustainable treatment. They get prescribed painkillers, physiotherapy, surgery. A lot of imaging is being done. Too many opioids still around. Many of these solutions are for acute pain and only really provide temporary relief. So, you know, this together with the very high prevalence of chronic pain was really what motivated us to tackle this market, knowing how many people have absentee days at work. It's just a huge burden on, on the economy, on the healthcare system, and also on the individual. It really impacts your quality of life. So we knew if we could take a better therapy, and there was already a very broad and solid body of evidence around these more mind-body um, holistic therapies, such as multimodal pain therapy. Uh, they, they were just very expensive, and you had to do them in a three, four-week inpatient setting. We knew if we could make these therapies more accessible to people more broadly, that there was going to be 
eventually a business model around that. And maybe a little bit naively went first after, you know, the really directly the consumer, getting the consumer to pay out of pocket. And especially in the DAC region, right? Where yeah. I think there's a notion of, you know, Europe in general and Europeans, there's not much of a consumer market in healthcare. I would argue that, but that's a separate podcast. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, people in the DAC region probably are already a little bit skeptical around any kinds of digital subscriptions or paying for apps or any digital services more so than in other geographies. Also, data privacy is a very big topic that is on people's minds. However, we did see people you know, being very successful with the therapy and paying for it out of pocket while in parallel then kind of, you know, selling to private payers in Germany and, and furthering our research to build other clinical and health economic evidence. It did allow us this primary phase to continuously iterate the usability aspect of the product and get a very good problem solution fit while we were still kind of figuring out the piping around reimbursement and billing and who really would be the economic buyer at scale where we did realize direct-to-consumer wasn't going to be, at least right now, a scalable way of building out our traction long-term. So you put it out there in the app stores to the consumers. I do remember, as I was living at the time in Germany, I do remember some you know, sick funds sort of jumped on board, which uh, for our listeners in the US, those are insurers in Germany. Obviously, that also helped you get some additional evidence, right? Uh, or not evidence yet, but some data for that evidence. And you mentioned reimbursement. Um, so obviously, all eyes have been on DIGA in Germany. There's now 10 and counting companies. If you can talk about some of that pricing, and are you even an applicant in that process? I, I can't make a public statement right now about the DIGA pricing. Understood. But I, I can say that we're currently applying to be listed. Absolutely. What I can also mention is that just regarding our journey or path to reimbursement, as you know, when we started, DIGA was not yet in place and the thing. So McKinsey actually wrote a quite a good article and mentioned our journey as an example on the path to reimbursement in Germany, um, going you know through the stages of. Uh, going from a trial phase MVP type product to clearing the necessary regulatory hurdles to producing the clinical evidence necessary to sign contract with payers in combination with creating real world evidence and eventually the health economic evidence that is necessary for long-term reimbursement. Yes, we'll ask for that link and add it to the show notes for our listeners as well. So you're now sitting in United States of America in New York, and therefore, obviously, as you guys have been growing and you know got some early but larger successes in the DAC region, and I would say in Europe in general, what was the decision-making process? Because obviously the systems are very different, right? The money flows are different uh, for Kaya to enter the US market. You know, with devices and especially with software, you're navigating a global market. The US is one of the most important markets and there is also, we, we did see, you know, there was a very big unmet need here, clients who are willing to adopt new technologies. So I think 
that was right from the start when we started off, it was clear that eventually we would want to go to the US and offer our services here. So I think it wasn't really a decision that was made later. I think the decision was made right when the company was founded. The question was just how long do we iterate problem solution fit within Germany? Also knowing that if we can get the regulatory hurdles in Germany are very strict, in certain ways stricter than in the US. So we knew if we could sell to a German health plan that we would definitely be able to replicate the same thing in the US. So it was more a matter of when and not so much if. Our pricing slightly different, adapted to offering our services here in a, in a slightly different flavor as our channels are more enrollment-based more driven by the communication at the employer rather than the payer, as it was the case in Germany. So I would say definitely the reimbursement and the delivery model has a slightly different flavor in each geography that you're operating in. But in the end, again, I, I think you know, you're playing in a global market and you've you got to go after the big markets where there is opportunity. So let's jump back to the product, because I think for many people, and as I'm exploring the space, you know, what the heck is a digital therapeutic and what is that consumer and a slash patient experience? And maybe verbally just walk us through in a couple of minutes of what does that look like? And, you know, you don't have to pick a geography just from, you know, I get whether notified by the employer or a prescription, just walk us through a little bit what it looks like, what it feels like. Yeah, so uh, typically a individual would find out about us from the material that we send out together with our clients, such as a health plan or an employer. The individual will create an account, fill out a medical assessment. We then use that data to create a comprehensive medical profile and assign the right therapy content and difficulty level for the physical exercises to that user. And they then learn about kind of the their current baseline and pain profile, condition profile. They get a coach assigned, a personal coach, and then we inform them about the therapy plan, which we created for them. They then start their first Kai experience with completing an educational module, as well as a playful warm-up with our motion coach, which is a computer vision algorithm giving feedback on exercise execution and after that, the user jumps to their first physical exercise session, which is tailored to their profile. And then, yeah, during the exercise, we, we can gather data and further customize the therapy to that individual. After completion, they can also do one of our relaxation techniques, and then they're free to return to their second day whenever um, they find the time again. Then... The coach is also available to talk to anytime directly and kind of help the users, mainly with the motivational aspect, setting smart goals to build powerful habits so that people become long-term successful in using the solution versus, you know, the inpatient setting where you go in and there's really that behavior change aspect that is, is much more central for us than maybe in the traditional healthcare system where you get something prescribed and you get it for a certain limited time period and then you don't really make it part of your life. And that's kind of the, the main problem of treating chronic conditions, right? Though I loved your term of motivation 
versus what I would say in the molecular space, uh, you know, adhering, right? <laughs> Being motivated, setting goals versus, you know, swallowing a pill and adhering to it. Um, you know, I've been fascinated around, you know, somewhat trying to compare digital therapeutics because it is a therapy, whether it's a molecular therapy or a software therapy, and there are active ingredients in both. And so I'm fascinated to kind of understand a little bit of what you guys consider the active ingredient and that process where, you know, what the pharma companies go through versus a digital therapeutic. So maybe touch on a couple of active ingredients in there. Yeah, great question and um, great topic. And we could probably do another episode on that one alone, right? So we really have built all of our evidence around the, the digital aspect, really the software being that molecule. And that aspect would sort of fall into the category of prescription digital therapeutics. And oftentimes, you know, they all the development and all the research is being done pre-market. And then, you know, you go through the regulatory hurdles and you go to market at once. I think that's where maybe we differ slightly from that approach, just because we did iterate that usability aspect in the early days with consumers, because we do believe that it is extremely important to get constant feedback from a constant influx of new users. And only that in the end makes this therapy successful because people will long-term adhere to it because it is a nice user experience. Be motivated to use it. Yeah, exactly. And so we, we built our evidence around really always the digital intervention, but that motivational piece that you just mentioned, we just realized as we were developing the product that there definitely is still a space for humans and certain elements we can still not really automate. And so we've been very careful to create our evidence in prospective trial really around the software and the human aspect currently really is non-interventional. It is about motivation, about keeping people adherent to use that wording. But we do believe that what we can automate, we do automate. I think that's also our responsibility in terms of saving more costs. But then for where we know the human element really is the right one, such as motivation, but also such as referrals to the right next point of care, that's really where we believe we can, with, with that right blend, we can add efficiency to the current existing traditional healthcare system. And that's why we chose to have that blend. Perfect. And, you know, to add to that, and this is more of, I guess, a little bit of a philosophical where you, Jonah, sees this. So there is what you mentioned, and we've been talking about a pure prescription digital therapeutic. Then there's surrounding, in, in your guys' cases, around health coaching to motivate these individuals to, you know, continue on that journey. Then there's the full, you know, disease management 2.0 market. I mean, if we think about the Livango and Amadas of the world, Where's your head around where this is all going? You know, digital therapeutic, disease management 2.0, merging, not merging. Yeah, there's so many elements in there. I like to split it up between, it depends what indication you're treating. It depends how much risk is involved because the prescription aspect oftentimes depends on what risk you're actually exposing somebody to, and therefore you need a prescriber. And then it just also depends on the local regulation. So we're pursuing 
different flavors of both models with two indications in different geographies. And they're quite different in terms of delivery and reimbursement. So I would say, building on the answer of the question before, we're somewhere in the middle. Our evidence is around the digital therapeutic. The human element is complementary. And where we can, we try and integrate with the traditional healthcare system to make disease management more efficient. And, you know, it also has to do with, are you treating a highly prevalent condition or not, right? If you have a prevalence of 1% in a workforce, it probably doesn't make sense that you send reminder emails to the whole workforce, please go get this digital therapeutic. And especially if it's a very debilitating disease, you should see a medical professional and that should be the path of how you should get prescribed your prescription digital therapeutic. With chronic condition management, especially with conditions where the treatment is conservative and relatively low risk, such as in chronic pain, I believe it makes sense to work with this enrollment model where you offer this to all the employees at a company and you try to catch as many as possible and you then allow people to self-select with the right triage process in the product so you can further minimize risk. So let's continue a little bit on that topic of, you know, Digital therapeutic companies have been cuddling with pharmaceuticals. You guys as Kaya have generally, I know in the good old days with me wearing my old hat, we had a number of discussions. I couldn't convince other stakeholders. But as you guys entered with the sick funds in the DAC, working in US through the employer and, and other models, you guys do have a deal. And I think this is probably near and dear to your heart with COPD with a pharma player. Where do you see that relationship of a digital therapeutic and pharma going? One swallows the other because you guys as a digital therapeutic company know a consumer slash healthcare experience or vice versa? So I think it really depends. Uh, my boring answer to all questions. <laughs> <laughs> it always does depend. That, that is true. <laughs> I think if pharma just sees uh, digital therapeutics to sell more drugs, I don't think that will be the most feasible path to success. And we're only talking about digital therapeutics right now, right? There's, of course, the broader category of digital health, where, you know, you can start talking about the CRO aspect of digital tools and data gathering and targeting and so on. So when just talking about digital therapeutics, I do think they will play an important role in the prescription digital therapeutic space. I think the question for me is less if, but more when digital therapeutics are important enough for a pharma company to really be treated as their own separate products with their own separate product launches rather than marketing gadgets just to seem and come across as innovative and sell more of their traditional products. So question of when and who also, I think it'll come down to how bold, how innovative, how uh, long-term a pharma company strategy is. And my personal view on this is that sometimes smaller and family-owned or influenced companies classically were willing to place more bold long-term bets than publicly traded companies that have to report on a quarterly basis. So yeah, I think in the countries where the right reimbursement pathways exist, some pharma will, in my opinion, play a role earlier or later in the promotion and distribution of digital therapeutics, and maybe also in the development, we'll see. But I think it's a matter of time and probably 
many people in the pharma space would love it would go faster, but I think that has to do with the design of these mega institutions that it doesn't always go as fast as you'd wish. Well, that sound means it's time for a question from my journalistic partner on this podcast, Brian Dolan, who is the founder of Exits and Outcomes, and as I like to call him, the digital health detective. Let's see what question Brian has for our guest today. Okay, here's my question. If you had to pick, name another digital health company that has helped shape Kaya's strategy. Which other companies in digital health do you think are doing it right? And whose strategy do you admire most or have you learned from the most? Thank you, Brian. Great question. Early on, there were a few companies that we thought were like us, working hard to find that crucial equilibrium in digital health, technology, and human intervention. If I were to name one, Livongo stood out in their efforts to connect a glucose measurement device with a human support system to help them manage their condition. Managing a chronic condition is so much more complex than simply following a drug regimen, and these conditions are uniquely suited to a comprehensive approach from the digital side of ease of tracking, measurement, automation, and insights all the way to more hands-on care. The challenge is, of course, effectively optimizing for both, a balance that we at Gaia continue to strive towards. While we are definitely a deeply technological solution, our development is always informed by the patient experience. So as part of our focus on empowering the patient to manage their condition, we also provide coaches for support and work with partners to ensure that we are contributing to the best care path for the patient. You'll see that evolution more prominently in the coming year as we incorporate more options for the human elements of care to build upon our core digital therapy. It's an incredibly exciting time to be at Digital Health, and we feel both challenged and supported by so many other companies' efforts out there. I feel like we're in a fantastic industry with so many driven and creative people and a lot of exchange, and it really feels like an industry coming together, figuring certain things out. No one has a perfect, but we do our best to lead where we can and learn from the market successes as well. I'm going to hop in here as well, because I think you probably learned a lot of lessons, you know, looking at Amada and other players early on, you guys are sort of taking your own path, obviously. We started with who you are, and I would like to end this podcast a bit with what makes you get up in the morning? What is your why? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, a really important one for me personally. I often boil it down to the dallies decreasing the number of DALYs in this world. DALY is a D-A-L-Y is a term for disability adjusted life years. It's based on the hypothesis that the most appropriate measure of the effects of chronic illness is time lost due to premature death and also time spent disabled by disease, time that you spend with less quality where you're not able to enjoy your life as much. And so therefore one DALY is you know equal to one year of a healthy healthy life lost. And I know that with our work, we are giving people time back. And we can actually measure that. And either to live longer or to live a higher quality life, that is time that our users, our individuals get to choose how to spend. That's one of the most valuable gifts there is. And being able to kind of look at the numbers, see how many people have exercised and, and sort of assume how much better the quality of life 
or actually measure is, and especially in the COPD space, actually potentially that people live longer. And these are people in retirement. So it is, you know, they get to reap the full time. That is something extremely motivating to me to understand. We've had a lasting impact in people's life and we have given them back the, the most valuable resource there is time. So that's really what's driving me on the days where maybe I, I want to be curled up in bed a little longer. <laughs> yes, especially these days. So amazing. And Jonas, thank you so much for your time. And I'm sure our listeners learned a lot from you. Thanks. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for tuning into Digital Therapeutics Edition of Digital Health Today, a production of mission-based media. Be sure to hit that subscribe button to this podcast on your favorite podcast player so you're then automatically notified when we post our upcoming episodes where I speak with dozens of leaders and trailblazers who are forging the path for digital therapeutics. If you'd like to learn more about Your Coach Health or Brian Dolan's Exit and Outcomes, you can always find the links to this and more in the show notes for this episode. You can connect with me personally on Twitter at HealthEugene or follow my journey of writing my first book, Heart Pill to Swallow, at heartpilltoswallow.substack.com. I'm Eugene Borohovich, and catch you next time.